Welcome to another episode of the Fistcast, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. In this episode, we are discussing the structures of faith journeys and also a key lesson that I learned from Atheism for Lent from Peter Rollins that is associated with faith journeys. So it's perhaps a bit abstract at the beginning, concept that I am taking from Peter Rollins's work is based in philosophy and psychoanalysis and I'm doing my best to make it understandable and I hope that I do that fairly well. But I I urge you to give it a chance. I think there's something useful there and and maybe even critical. Um, We then get into Brian McLaren's version of faith stages and I think when we get there it will feel less abstract so thanks for listening so one of the things that we're wrestling with is what to do with the the complexities and the paradoxes that have come up for us over a number of years, but have really got come to a head over the last, say, five years. And so we talk about this quite a bit, and I think we're starting to get some language around it and some ideas around it that I think we can share that might be helpful. But part of the difficulty is that they're not fully formed. But I think that's okay. Um, I want to suggest here at the beginning that there might be a truth around them not being fully formed meaning it might actually be uh, healthy to acknowledge that they're probably never going to be fully formed so i i'm getting this as with almost all things you know your your thinking gets prompted by engaging with good thinkers and for me that's meant really um, moving away from comfortable theologians and philosophers that I knew from years ago, things I've studied, say, when I was at Hope College or Western Seminary, and then it was after that that I really got thrown into the to the deep end when I went to University of Chicago and then at Duke, although I would say the deepest end was University of Chicago more so even than Duke, because Duke's a bit more um, orthodox. And then since then, I've just kept trying to um, find bigger and more complex bodies of water to swim in. And um, that's been hard, but ultimately life-giving. So I mentioned last time that I did Atheism for Lent a few years ago. Um, So I did it, I think it was 2018. And so I wanted to share... A key concept I learned from Peter Rollins in Atheism for Lent. So Peter Rollins is really steeped in theology and philosophy, uh, both, and psychoanalysis. Those are, those are the three areas that he's really big in. And frankly, theology is not the biggest one. He's really biggest at this point in his career in philosophy and um, psychoanalysis and he has this fairly unique concept 
that he takes from uh, philosophy and psychoanalysis and then applies to Christian theology. And uh, I've appreciated listening to him on this and felt like it's really getting at something. So I want to try and explain it. So this is like Peter Rollins dumbing down psychoanalysis and philosophy and then me dumbing down Peter Rollins, which is totally fine. This is how these things work. (laughs) He says that generally speaking, uh, we all have a sense of lack within us. We sense there's something lacking. And a lot of our time and energy is spent in trying to fill this lack or this void within us. Um, He also uses the term the lost object. There's something lost that we're trying to find. In psychoanalysis, there's a couple of possibilities. One is to say that there was an original wholeness that we are trying to return to, which is not his favorite way of thinking of it. Rather, he thinks of it as though the lack that we feel is actually built into the human experience, meaning, and this is where he gets a little into psychoanalysis, that to become a self, to come into consciousness, is to undergo a transformation that is difficult and somewhat frustrating and creates this feeling of lack or of the lost object. Because there is no self without separating from everything else. So there may have been a time that is unconscious to us now in which, as a baby, we felt um, connected to everything around us, especially to a person, a a caregiver. And it was, uh, he uses the term, a sense of oceanic oneness that we felt. And that somewhere in, in us we may still remember what that felt like. But then as you become a self, right, a conscious um, person, as you grow, there, there's a moment in which you detach from the caregiver, and that's a necessary thing to become a self, and that creates this loss within you, right? This attachment, the sense of oneness and oceanic oneness with the caregiver, And he then uses that idea to think about the human condition in general, but then he applies it to uh, Christian theology. So what happens is there's all these ways in which we're seeking something that will fill that lack within us. And we sometimes do it in healthy ways and often do it in unhealthy ways. Uh, And Christianity, in some forms, and I would say almost in many forms, presents uh, God or faith in Jesus or a relationship with Jesus as the thing that's going to fill that lack. Because God is the one that lacks the lack. Surely God is whole and complete. And God is offering to you wholeness and completeness through Jesus and he thinks that's not true in a fundamental sense. But he also has stories from the Bible that he thinks illustrate that that's not always what the Bible's trying to communicate. That is that we can achieve some sort of oneness 
with God and then not feel any lack anymore within us and anxiety that we may be trying to fill with relationships or with drugs and alcohol or with gathering of things, a bigger house, a better car. You know, we know how this goes. Uh, We know what it's like to think or, or to try and fill it just a little bit with a couple of things from Amazon that we're really think might make our life a little bit better that day. So I think a lot of people can identify with this this itch of something that they can improve um, that will fill that little bit of void. So he talks about two stories. Um, one is the Garden of Eden story. And he's picking on both progressives and on sort of fundamentalists when he talks about this story because fundamentalists want to say, This is where original sin comes in. So this is the thing that happens that creates the lack, the void. But before that, there was some sort of oneness, some sort of unity, right? So we're going to go back to the garden, and then we're going to be complete. And then God is solving that problem through Jesus. That's the big story for fundamentalists. And progressives come along and have started to chip away at the idea of original sin. And I've been one, I've been among them in thinking this way that, I don't think that's what the story really teaches. Um, We should talk more about original blessing, right? If you read Genesis 1, that comes before this story. You know, God calls humanity good. We're made in the image of God. So let's talk about original blessing instead. And he doesn't think either of those quite get it right, actually. So in the garden, when he interprets that story, so this is Adam and Eve in the garden with the snake, he said, you have this snake come up, the serpent comes up and says, offers to them wholeness and completeness. So there's this forbidden fruit, and he says, yeah, but it's not bad. This is good. This is the thing that will make you like God, right? This is the thing that will make you whole and complete. So it's possible, in fact, that the knowledge of good and evil means the knowledge of everything, good and evil being two opposites and and therefore knowing everything right having full knowledge and they fall for the temptation who can blame them the fruit looked good um, and it's great for making one wise make you like god that seems like a good offer so they take it and though the story ends by saying they did become more like god knowing good and evil it's ultimately a tragedy And even for them, they sort of are acknowledging, even before God gives them any punishments, they don't seem more content after having eaten from the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They hide from God. You know, there's sort of who's to blame here. They put the fig leaf. Fig leaf, right? They cover things up. It's something about the knowledge they gain doesn't actually improve or make them feel more whole and complete and so what peter rollins says is the serpent is doing the thing that for example he would say maybe our super ego does to us so freud has this idea of we have an id an ego and a super ego and the super ego is always pushing us like make sure you exercise today make sure you you know you get up on time eat the right things right it can be good because it's trying to improve us but it's, it never works. We always fall short. So the superego is always making us feel sort of guilty and shame as it tries to push us towards becoming whole and complete. 
Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And he says the serpent is like our superego coming yeah. in and saying, no, it's not bad. Do it. You'll love it. It'll be better. And uh, lo and behold, it doesn't work. Uh, we know that though our superego may have good intentions, it is often making us feel shame and guilt because we are falling short all the time. We're human yeah. beings. Yeah. Okay. So that's his reevaluation of the story. So it's not really about fall. It's more so like explaining the human condition where we feel this lack. We want to fill it. It can't be done. And it's not, not because it's bad, not because the lack is bad or because we're bad. Rather, as he says earlier, to become a self is to separate and to lose that sense of oneness and wholeness that you might have had as a child, as a baby. It's necessary. So the lack is absolutely necessary for consciousness. And maybe it doesn't exist at all. But there it is in us, and we feel it. Yeah. And we can't get rid of it. Right. So here's the other story. This is Jesus' crucifixion. I mentioned this, I think, in the last episode, that there's a real absurdity around the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, the really unique thing about Christianity is this idea possibly of incarnation. And then also that the incarnation ends with crucifixion and then resurrection. It's very odd. And so he says, you know, there's a, this built-in absurdity of Jesus dying on the cross. How does the God die? And I don't think there's actually a very good answer to that. We've made it formulaic. God dies to save you from your sins. And I think right now we're going through a period in which a lot of people are saying, I don't think that's it, mm -hmm. right? Well, there's this other event that happens in the Gospels right around when Jesus dies, and that is that the temple curtain is torn in two. And it's not explained what that's supposed to mean, but it gives it's usually given a very particular meaning by anybody I've ever heard talk about it. Don't you think? Have you, I mean, what have you heard? I'm, I'm speaking of the temple curtain's torn in two because now we have full access to God through Jesus because Jesus died for our sins and now there's no barrier between us and God. That's correct. Okay. That's what I've always heard. The temple, the curtain, by the way, is between yeah, good. the Holy of Holies and the sanctuary. Yes. The Holy of Holies is the place where God's footstool is, where there used to be the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim and uh, the... The commandments, the, the stone commandments there, and there was a jar of manna in there, and uh, there was um, uh, Moses or Aaron's staff. I mean, all of that was said to be in there. And um, it was lost what, during the uh, time of Isaiah, Babylonian conquest. Right. Then that was lost. And some believe, in fact, there are still stories in Jerusalem, I heard them when I was there, that it's buried somewhere in the Temple Mount, right. that Isaiah buried it somewhere in the Temple Mount, the the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, and you got Raiders of the Lost Ark is, is a story about the fact that we don't know where the Ark is, and maybe it's That's over correct. here, and what That's power correct. does it hold, and all that yeah, kind right, of stuff. Right. So in Rollins' telling, um, as he works on this idea of the lost object, our lack... Does God lack the lack? Are we trying to fill the lack? H how does that even work? He says, what happens when the temple curtain is torn in two? What's behind the curtain? 
And we all know the answer to this. There's there's no debate about this. Nothing yeah. is the answer. And so his point is to say the absurdity of the cross is compounded by the knowledge of the fact that this object we're seeking, which is God, who will make us whole and complete and is supposed to be housed in the temple behind the curtain, when the curtain is torn in two, we all know that to look upon that, to look inside is to see there's nothing there. So it's this idea that this thing we're always seeking doesn't exist. We're not going to find it. Rather, the truth of existence is we live amongst the contradictions. We live amongst the confusions. We live amongst incomplete information. We live in unknowing. But to acknowledge that and to move forward anyways, that is the goal. To live in the confusion, to live in the contradiction, and to move forward anyways. He says, and this is where he gets a little fuzzy for me, he says that God can be made manifest through acts of love. That's where God is made manifest. So the sense in which he's undercutting these notions of God as even maybe a being, but rather maybe an experience so you experience God in, in moments, in fleeting moments. So, for example, just an act of kindness that someone does towards you unexpectedly or the love of a family member or a friend when you really need it. That those, there's something special about those moments. But that, they're, yes, they're fleeting. They never fill you up. They don't ever take away the contradictions and confusions, but they are little little moments of, of sort of grace. So that's one thing I've been reflecting on for, what, three years now, and I came back to it to be able to try and speak with some clarity about it. And if, if you think, well, that's interesting, I'd like to understand that better than what Josh just gave, Divine Magician by Peter Rollins, and just kind of search up Peter Rollins, you'll find he does a lot of this. turning. It's a real turning of things on its head. Because another thing is to say is maybe it's living in the contradictions where all the energy and creativity is. Yeah, that's true. And I've found that to be true. Mm -hmm. And maybe then that's where God is. Maybe God is not whole and complete. Because maybe we are actually complete, and this is something he loves to do, these kind of sayings. Maybe we are actually complete in our incompleteness. Now, that sounds too fancy and strange, I realize. There's a kernel of truth there. I mean, if you've been in situations, work situations, or with friends where you're just, you're wrestling through the real stuff, the hard stuff, and you're kind of working it out, you know there's a lot of energy in that space. The space where everybody has already made up their mind and knows what's true there's no energy there. Yeah. There's no creativity there, right? It just feels suffocating. And when you get in a situation where people are lively, they're curious, they're open, they're not judgmental, they're not trying to say they know, but they got some ideas and they'd love to talk to you about them, 
the energy is different in those yeah. spaces. Yeah. Even though everybody there is admitting they're just kind of dancing around what might be true. That's what he sort of says. You know, what you got to do is just dance around that feeling of lack and make your peace with it. That's where harmony might exist. So I've really enjoyed that piece of it. And the more I've read other people, and I know, for example, you're reading Brian McLaren, you, you start to hear other people are saying something similar to that. I mean, is there a ring to what you've read so far, McLaren, to that? Well, I, I would first comment that um, the language you're using and what you're talking about now drives most people crazy. They just do not know how to enter into that. In fact, because of the way American culture is and has been for a long, long time, any any wrestling in without certainty is almost seen as anathema. You you have to find certainty. If you're not wrestling to find certainty, what's the goal? If you're not going to the Bible to find answers, what's the goal? Yeah. If you're not going to church to have people tell you what you should believe or tell you what you believe is absolutely true, if you're not getting that on Sunday morning at church, what's the use of going to church? I don't want to go to church and have somebody make me think too much. Mm-hmm. That 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 is not what most people want. And I'm not trying to be... Um, it is. I mean, it is uncomfortable. Yeah. We've yeah. experienced that. I've experienced that over the last three years, last 10, 15 years. It isn't comfortable. That is true. I don't think you can pretend otherwise. The thing is, though, is there are more and more people who are hungering for something other than certainty because they know it doesn't exist. They just know it. We know it innately. Look, people who are certain about everything, they're, they're the least interesting people in the world. The people I want to spend the least amount of time with are the people who know it all. People who come in and say, I'll tell you what's true. I'll tell you what's absolute. I'll tell you what's right. Just listen to me. I'll tell you. There's nothing there that creates energy in me. I'm not like, hey, let you and me sharpen each other here. You know, it's it's more like I'm going to sharpen my axe on your head, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that's exactly what church is experiencing and many people are experiencing in church is that there is no energy there except when we uh, manufacture it with loud, with our music loud and lively. And so we feel pretty good after that part of it. But there, there's not energy for transformation in, that's a, lot the of thing, this, in a lot of church, I think. I think that's what a lot of us, a lot of us are experiencing. Not everybody, maybe not most people even, but more than we think. So, yes, uh, I have been reading uh, Brian McLaren for a while now. His new book is uh, Faith After Doubt, where he lays out his um, four stages, which I found really helpful. It took me, I have to say about this book, it took me through halfway before I really began to find it uh, engaging for me. But then as as I passed that halfway point, he started to pull some things together, and now I'm really enjoying the last part of the book, and I'm not finished with it yet. I've got two chapters left, but I've gotten through the meat of it, and now he's trying to draw everything together. So the four stages, the first stage is simplicity. And uh, not to be too simplistic here, 
but it's um, there's right and wrong, there's truth and falsehood, there's good and evil, there's black and white, and we have it. You know, in simplicity, you have the answers. You you have a literal interpretation of the Bible. You've chosen what you want to read out of it, that you want to take out of it. You take those things out of it. You're pretty sure. In fact, you're very sure. In fact, you're absolutely sure that these things are true. It's um, simplistic in the sense that there is no nuance. So simplicity. And then the next one is complexity. And complexity is where you, you move into a stage where you say, there are there are multiple answers to some of these questions that we're we're wrestling with. I mean, like the idea of atonement, for example, or Jesus dying for our sins, and we're beginning to wonder about well, what kind of God requires a blood sacrifice? And so we we enter into this phase where we're starting to say there's there's some some complexity around some of these some of these issues and. And so we find systems then that help us. And we we become very good at making things fit. And this is what I see, by the way, as a, as a tour guide in Israel-Palestine, having done that 70-some times, led 70-some tours, and you have now too. Not that we always do it right, but you listen to many of these tour guides, whether they're Jewish or Christian or even Muslim, and they want everything to fit together. They 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 recognize there's a lot of different things happening out there, but they've got answers to make everything fit. That's yeah. complexity. Mm-hmm. Complexity makes everything fit. Moves from this simplistic stage into a stage where it says, yes. But it all can still work. It can all work. It we can, can all make work. it work. We can make the Bible yeah, work. Yeah, because we're smart. We're educated. A lot of people in complexity are highly educated. They've worked hard to understand the best arguments out there, right? The aim is to make the simple truths make sense for a mature audience. That's right. It's not just that we can make things fit because we really can't. Because that's the next stage. The next stage recognizes that everything doesn't fit. Right. And and that's the stage that I'm in right now. Well, you remember when we had this uh, podcast we did on prophecy back in uh, in Advent a couple of years ago. We did a um, podcast about the how nonsensical it was for us to continue to say that the Old Testament predicted or prophesied what Jesus became. Right. That it prophesied or predicted a Messiah who would suffer and die and rise again. Right. And be human and divine both. And human and divine both. And the fact of the matter is prophecy doesn't do that. We made it do that. We made it fit. Right. Actually, the disciples made it fit. The disciples did it first. Yep. They were like, okay, we got to make this work. And the the reason the Jews never have come on board with Christianity is because it doesn't fit. And they know it doesn't fit. They know their Old Testament. Yeah. They know their scriptures. It's not, it's their Hebrew scriptures. They know their Hebrew scriptures. These rabbis and Jewish scholars, they know their scriptures. And so it's, it's nonsensical to them. I've heard them a hundred times 
on biblical sites in Israel, Palestine, say this very thing about prophecy. They say it derisively. Right. It's nonsense to say that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and then when we have biblical scholars, people who have Ph.D. degrees, saying that there are 10,000 or more passages in the Hebrew Scriptures that speak about Jesus, then people like you and me and more and more like you and me are sitting out there listening to that and we're going, I don't think so. That's the next stage. Yeah. But that's doing emotional work for that person who's saying it and for some people in the audience. Many, maybe most. I don't know. Maybe. It's hard Um, to say. But I've heard that. You know, I heard that. I've heard that. So that's my point is that when you move into perplexity, you start to deconstruct everything. That's third stage? That's third stage. You really have to guard about cynicism here. You and I are always kind of pushing each other about that. It's hard. Me more towards you than you toward me. But, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm constantly, mm-hmm. right? Because that's that's the hard part. It's hard. You can become really cynical and say nothing's true. There are no absolutes. There is no certainty. I was telling my uh, pastor friend this morning that I, this is what I do to most sermons. I sit there and deconstruct them. Right. And he laughed, and he said, I do the same thing. You know? He said, yeah. I do the same thing when I listen to sermons, mm-hmm. you know? And it becomes then the good thing about perplexity. The reason I love perplexity is there's a freedom there that says, hey, I don't have to buy that. I don't have to believe that. You know, when my mind takes that apart, I'm okay with that because my mind's right. on the right track. Right. When my mind is deconstructing the fact that a gracious, good, loving, creative, all-powerful, all you want to say about God couldn't find another way to deal with sin besides a blood sacrifice Mm -hmm. of his own son, Mm -hmm. when your mind goes there at the age of eight, and then it gets beat out of you Mm -hmm. until you get to the age of 80, Mm -hmm. and you finally say, okay, that does not compute that's right. That's perplexity. Yeah. And so then you say then, but the beauty of it is that's doubt. Yeah. All of these stages have doubt in them. And the reason it's perplex, what makes it, I think, perplexity is to say um, that doesn't make sense. And I'm not going to try any longer to have it make sense. Right. Right. Because complexity can say that doesn't make sense, but be searching frantically for somebody to make sense of it for you and then finding somebody. There's always something, somebody. Lots of smart people doing work on this kind of stuff to make it seem true. So I think perplexity, there's a there's a cynicism, but the cynicism is partly rooted in the fact that you're allowing yourself to live with the complexity and not fix it. Right. You know? I think that's exactly right. I love being in this stage, but... What Brian McLaren is helping me realize is it's not a healthy place to stay. That what happens in complexity and perplexity, really all stages, is belief gets substituted for faith. This is the new learning I got from Brian McLaren. And he got it from somebody who wrote centuries ago, he quoted, mm-hmm. there's a difference between a set of beliefs and faith. Faith is the stage I want to be in. 
a faith that says there are things happening that I want to plug into and um, the most the most important thing that's happening that I want to plug into and this circles around Rich Rollins the most important Peter Peter Rollins, Peter Rollins sorry it's Rich okay. Rollins is the vegan guy yeah well not Rich Roll oh Rich Rollins okay well, it's close. It's close. Had, Roll, Rollins, Rollins, Rich. There was R. It was R. Star. You know, for it's me, the same ballpark. You know, for me that I do. I you do. Know, yep. Um, it circles back to what Peter Rollins. Peter Rollins was saying about love, because this is where Brian McLaren comes out of too. Is that harmony? Then is when you reach that stage where your faith is in loving actions mm-hmm. that your faith is in loving people no matter what stage they're in right but at the same time not necessarily enabling them right or agreeing with or them. agreeing with them in what you might consider be their dysfunction but some or, kind of generosity towards them yep not thinking the worst of them not being yep. derisive toward them which is easy for me to be or yep. dismissive that's right which is easy for me to be especially if they're cult followers of Donald Trump. It's yeah. pretty easy for me to be dismissive right and derisive. Now. That's a it's tough one. It's a tough one. So anyway, harmony then, we realize that there are some things that you do believe. Mm-hmm. Simplicity, there are some things you believe. You know, complexity is that there are some things that work out. Perplexity is there are things that are just a conundrum. Yeah, and most like a lot of things are. Most things maybe either are a conundrum. That's because I'm in that phase. But that the harmony part of it is that uh, that undergirds it all. He goes to uh, you know First Corinthians thirteen, where there's uh, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Yeah, I think that's a good one. I do too. I, more and more, I think that's a good one because you go to church, you concentrate on faith. And you might concentrate on hope, and then you have difficulty trying to understand what is love and how is love the mm-hmm. greatest of these. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. I'm I'm still working through McGlaren, and we'll come back to these things. Yeah, but I think the four stages. Everybody's got stages. Peter Fowler's got mm-hmm. eight, right? You're you're in with that. Yeah, Fowler's got a bunch. So I'm just saying, I found these helpful to me. I'm in stage three trying to figure out how to be in stage four, which is harmony. Right. So if I'm following Peter Rollins and McLaren and trying to put them together, I'm saying harmony is a kind of peace that keeps perplexity, right? But doesn't get stuck only with deconstructing and not moving forward in any sort of productive way. But it it doesn't say, oh, I found a new system where it all works right that's not yeah. harmony because well, that would be a step backwards rather it's the perplexity remains yep that's but right. i found some core values maybe this is some language i've been thinking of i'm not so into core beliefs anymore but i am into some real core values yeah. that i think i can live out and find some real meaning in but the perplexity remains and i'm going to you know and with rollins thoughts I'm going to work around that perplexity, that lack, that confusion, and it's going to be creative and energetic for me. And and as Rollins says, um, acts of 
acts of love of sacrificial love probably i think like two other things i thought of was uh sometimes jesus's teachings there's this weird spot where he says he, he quotes from isaiah and he says um the whole point of these parables is to confuse them yeah i don't want them to understand and i've i've i always thought that is so strange but i've started to think no maybe the point of that is to say this is confusing. I want you to enter into the confusion of what's actually true. Right. Does that make some sense, maybe? Well, he quotes Isaiah. He that quotes comes Isaiah. out of Isaiah 6, right? Yep. And um, the other thing I thought of was the possibility that to see Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as similar to the sort of faith journeys that we're to go through. I think during much of Jesus' ministry, he, he felt a sense of simplicity. I've been given this mission from God. I'm going to preach this good news and tell people to repent because then God's going to come and he's going to wipe out all this mess here and we're going to replace it with the kingdom of God and this is going to be great. That's really good. And then yeah. he's thrown into perplexity and then he actually dies and he's totally, I mean, sort of into complexity, sorry. First thrown into complexity where he starts to realize, I'm not sure this is how this is going right. to go. That's right. And then he goes into perplexity on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like he's totally lost, right? And then post-resurrection would be harmony. Ironically, though, the harmony isn't a harmony that fixes everything. Right. But it's, and it's not even a harmony for everyone. It's a harmony for Jesus and the possibility of listening I don't even know how to phrase this quite right, but it, there's a possibility of seeing in Jesus's life what's ahead for everyone, right. what we all have to go through, right? As opposed to it fixed everything. Rather, it shows us the difficult path we all have ahead of us. And there's some of that in there, right? Picking up, we all, we all need to pick up our own crosses, right? So I, don't, I think there's something there in, in thinking of Jesus's example of his life and ministry and death and resurrection as something we all need to go through in our own way. The last thing I want to do is just to preview something I want to talk about. Maybe we'll do it next time is um, I think part of the reason we're stuck where we are in the white church in the United States and in much of the church period around the world, I would say, I think the black church is a little bit better, but they're in under really tough circumstances is the problem of whiteness. And I'm reading a book called After Whiteness by Willie Jennings, and it is so, so good. And he talks about whiteness is a, um, it's a culture. It's not about skin color, although it is often manifest and through history has been manifest by white Europeans. And what it is, is an, it's an obsession with uh, possession uh, mastery and control all aspects of life education your job the church are just polluted by it this desire this need and even as a value that this is what we seek we seek possession mastery and control of people of resources of ideas this is what we want. And it's, it's killing us. It is, it's killing the world. It's killing people. It's killing our, uh, our spirit, right? And so I want, I want to 
bring some of those concepts um, going forward because I found them really, really crucial and I think helpful. And I think they're sort of the water we're swimming in, but we don't know it, right? There's this um, there's this short parable of an old fish swimming by two young fish and say, and he says to him, how's the water today? And one of the fish turns the other and says, what's water? That's whiteness right now for me. That's why I think we have to start talking about it. It's pervasive, but we haven't named it. So we don't know its effects and how much it's, it's trapped us. Yeah. And I think I want to, maybe we can close this out with an encouragement. There's a quote by Martin Buber in um, one of his books, and I looked for it today, and it it really doesn't matter which one, but I will find it and bring you the source. But he's talking about change. Martin Buber was a Jewish theologian, Jewish scholar, who actually was a Zionist, meaning that he he believed that Jewish people should um, have a nation, and that nation should be in the land of Israel, that they call the land of Israel. He very much believed that. He believed they needed to be in a, in a place where they could protect each other and protect the Jews around the world. But he also believed that the Palestinians needed to be brought along. And he, he had very strong views on that, and he disagreed with Ben-Gurion and others who were... Um, who were ardent Zionists who wanted to drive and did drive the Palestinians out and are still trying to drive the Palestinians out. Mm -hmm. That's still ardent um, Zionism. Zionism. But he he was talking about um, change. And he said change happens imperceptibly over time and then all at once. Imperceptibly over time than all at once. And I'll give you a quick example. We were hiking in the Negev. The Negev is southern part of, of what is now the state of Israel. And it's very uh, rugged, hot, um, a difficult place, right? And we were walking in this valley with a guide. Our Jewish guide was named Amir. And we were walking along, and we came over a rise, looking into this ravine. And he went, oh, my, it finally happened. And he stopped, and he looked at it. He was a guy who was a geologist. He was really bright, really into geology and the earth and profoundly educated in it and uh, and an ecologist. And we said, what? He said, well, look at the bottom of the ravine. And at the bottom of the ravine was this huge um, rock with a bunch of other rocks around it. And, I mean, he said, he said, that that's probably in, in essence of almost a million tons right there you're looking at. He said, the last time I was here, that was up on the wall. He said, that fell since the last time I was here last week. He said, but... The fall has been happening for centuries. He said erosion has been cutting into that bit of rock for a long time, and then all of a sudden it fell. And when he said it, I thought about Poober's quote, change happens imperceptibly 
over time, and then all at once. Hey, thanks so much for sticking with us. See you next week.